Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 129th show. Today's guest uh, is uh, innovation and entrepreneur expert Lorraine uh, Marchand, author of Innovation Mindset. And uh, for all of us in Philadelphia, Lorraine is local to us. I mean, we're so used to having authors from all over the world, and it's nice to have somebody uh, from the Philadelphia region. Lorraine, welcome. Well, thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, we're enjoying some beautiful fall equinox weather in Philadelphia. So I hope others are as well. Yeah. So uh, let's start with you telling us a little bit about your professional background. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Well, interestingly, I feel as though my story is a little bit of full circle because I started my career as a journalist and uh, I had a, a degree in biology and journalism from the University of Maryland. And uh, and so I, my, one of my first positions out of college was actually at the National Institutes of Health. And I was really intrigued by the topic of diabetes um, advances at the time. So I worked at NIDDK in, in the writing group. And, and one of the things that I observed there in the, in the mid-90s was that I was seeing all of the advances in cell therapy, biologics. We had done the first gene therapy study in a young man. And at the same time, I was looking at the clinical trial or clinical research infrastructure. And of course, this was still the era of blockbuster medicines for cardiovascular disease. And what I noticed was that all of the NIH clinical trials were being conducted in white middle-aged men because we were looking at heart disease. And I was, I was also at the same time impressed with the therapeutic advances where the science was going, the sequencing of the human genome. And I just knew that the infrastructure was not going to be adequate for all of those advances that were coming down the pike. And so I decided that what I wanted to do was grab hold of this big elephant and, uh, and see where I could ride it and what I could do with it in order to solve what I thought was a big, messy, complicated problem and an area that needed to be transformed. And that theme has really guided me. When I went on to work at an Omnicom agency called Porter Novelli, it was around creating a new model of how to do clinical research, how to broaden to different diverse populations, different ethnicities, including women. We started testing trials with different populations in order to better design the study to meet individuals' needs. And then I followed that theme through in my role at Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, companies like IQVIA, LabCorp, IBM Watson Health. So I like to say that my career has very much been a journey of solving problems in my industry, which is about life sciences and trying to get therapeutic advances to patients faster. And we have two things in common. I started out as a journalist and still write for publications. And I'm also a diabetic, having to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. Boy, could I use a piece of chocolate cake? Uh, why, why did you write this book? 
Well, throughout my career journey, I have had an opportunity to be uh, an innovator in large corporations. I mentioned some of the companies that I had worked for. And I also have uh, founded a number of startups, um, an ocular diagnostic company uh, and a few other companies that I've been a co-founder on. And as I had my own experience as a startup entrepreneur, especially the first time around in the Philadelphia area, I found that it was taking me a lot of time to make all the connections, to find all the resources, to really gather everything that I needed to know in order to write my business plan, to speak with investors. And I thought, you know what, somebody needs to write a handbook or an acceleration guide in order to help startups, you know, on their path faster. So as I had that experience, I started to put my content together. I've been a business advisor at the University City Sciences Center for QED. I've taught entrepreneurship and innovation at Princeton, at Columbia, Yeshiva University, and I've amassed a lot of content. And I had a colleague who said, Lorraine, you have so much content here on how to commercialize products and do it based on your own experience and all the case studies and ways that you can help others avoid the same mistakes that you've made, you really ought to write a book. And I'm one of those individuals, when somebody gives me a challenge like that, I'm liable to say, okay, I think I'll go write that book. And then honestly, COVID developed and it became for me the perfect opportunity with weekends and weekdays available. They say with COVID, you either became a chunk, a hunk, a drunk. I say, well, I became a monk because I hung out every weekend and I would write two chapters of the book a month. I put it together and my hope was that I would develop a guide that would that, that I wished had existed when I had had my startup that could help people avoid those mistakes. And I really wanted to lift people up. I just had a sense that coming out of COVID, people were going to need hope, that there were a lot of interesting innovations that had happened during COVID. And I want to inspire and lift people up so that if they have an idea for a startup, if they want to be more effective in their own corporation, they know that innovation is something that you can develop, that you can do a job with, that you can become more creative. And I want them to, uh, to give it a try. How do you define the innovation mindset? Well, to me, the innovation mindset is an insatiable curiosity. And I have a personal story that I can tell around that. It is a passion for problem solving. And as you read my book, you'll see that that's the foundation that I really that I really hold to is that an innovation has to solve a problem that a customer is willing to pay for. And it's about embracing change. So those are the, the qualities that I believe are an innovation mindset. The key is that the client is willing to pay for the innovation. That Because you might have an innovation problem that needs solving, but nobody wants to pay for it. You know, my focus has been on commercializing or bringing your innovation to market. There are a lot of different angles on this particular topic, but that's what my career has focused on. And so that's what I felt most credible writing about was the commercialization goal. So um, in the book, you talk about your dad, and I was wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your dad and what you learned about innovation from him. Well, my favorite story about my dad is when, when we were growing up, I had a younger brother, and my dad would always challenge my brother and myself to find three solutions to every problem. Sometimes he'd find problems around the house. 
point something out. We'd always have to find three solutions. And he really brought that point home one summer when he took us to the Hot Chops cafeteria. We lived in Maryland at the time. I was 13 and my brother was 10. And our job as we sat there in the big vinyl red booths eating our breakfast three mornings in a row was to determine what was slowing down table turnover. So we had our marble composition books, our three color pens, stopwatches. He cleared the 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 uh, the, the situation at the hot shop so that we could interview the busboys and the waitresses. And after three days of observation and note taking and evidence gathering, we determined that the culprit were sugar packets. And as people were emptying the sugar in their beverages, they were tossing them on the table. It was taking extra time to to clean up. But knowing my dad, we couldn't stop there because we had to come up with three solutions. So we did liquid sugar and we had a couple different ideas. But the idea that we actually ended up taking to prototype was something that we called the sugar cube. And it held the sugar packets as well as the discarded ones, but it had four cubes and we could put advertising in it. So the Hot Shops cafeteria manager loved it. She ordered them, we went into manufacturing and she loved it so much that she spread the word throughout the Baltimore, Washington area. And within about six months, I found out that problem solving was fun and it also was lucrative because we had brought our first product to market. So that's what my dad taught us. I think that's very creative on your dad's part to ask you for three solutions. I thought that's pretty clever. Yeah, and, and I think as, as parents, I know we've got a lot of people around the, the, the proverbial room today, but I think it's a wonderful thing to encourage your children. You know, when you talk about curiosity, problem solving, embracing change, for me, it, it started at the age of 12 or 13, and that's when people are so impressionable. And uh, I think we really have an opportunity as parents, as teachers, as coaches, to encourage this kind of innovation mindset in people at a, at a young age. That's what my kids would my kids would say to me uh, when they would ask me about a problem. I would try to help them figure out how to solve it themselves. My oldest one said to me, "Don't treat us like a consulting client. Uh, Just tell me the answer." (laughs) (laughs) In in the beginning of the book, you wrote about asking executives about their level of curiosity. When do people stop being curious or minimally curious, and how do you restart their engine? So I have a philosophy about this. If anybody has ever experienced a four-year-old and the incessant string of whys, we know that we are born with a certain innate curiosity. And as we go through school, I believe that that curiosity sometimes is quelled because I think that in rote education, it becomes very important to know the answers, to repeat the facts, Then as we become adults in our business setting, we need to be smart. We can't say that we don't know. So there's a lot of pressure to know answers. And as soon as you think you know an answer, honestly, you've stopped listening and you've stopped thinking and you've closed your mind off. And I think that for innovation to flourish, it has to be in an atmosphere of experimentation. And in order to have an atmosphere of experimentation, we have to be open to asking questions, to not having the answers. So that's my own personal observation about what happens to individuals. And usually when I ask people to think back 
what they were doing at the age of 12, if they've lost their passion for work, or if they're feeling stuck. A lot of times I'll go back to my sugar packet story and I'll say, well, what did you want to be when you were 12? What were you thinking about? What excited you? What was the first time you created something interesting or solved a problem? And, and try to get back to that nugget and try to unpack all those things that we've learned as adults that have caused that innovation or creative spirit to dig, to go down way, way deep inside. It's got to be brought forward. What's the hardest part of running an innovation conference or session with people from big companies? Because I think a lot of, you know, um, people are brought in as consultants to do that or the com- or the leader themselves wants to run a conference like that uh, for their own people to get them their minds percolating because they don't want to be stagnant. They want the company to come up with innovative products, ideas, uh, and, and things that even from a service standpoint are going to make them better. So what do you, what's your suggestion? What's the hardest part of doing it and how do you make it work well? Well, I think there are a couple components here and it's a very important question because as you know, so many corporations realize that if they don't innovate, they're going to stagnate, they're going to perish. So it's become a, a very important topic from the top all the way through the ranks of the, uh, the the corporation. I think a couple things happen. I think sometimes innovation is mandated from on high. And so in the story in the opening of the book, in that particular situation, it was the CEO of a large corporation who wanted everybody to think more innovatively, started to put together workshops, bringing together the, the senior and the executive level individuals. And anybody who's been in a corporation, it's very easy to do the eye roll, right? And you're saying, okay, this is the topic du jour. The big boss is ma- making us come to this workshop. We've got to sit with this consultant. You know, this is taking time away from from work, this is going to be boring, or I'm going to hear things I already know, or it's going to be big expensive consulting that we that we slide into a drawer. So I think it's perfectly understandable that people could be skeptical. And so you have to realize that you could be walking into a room of skeptics. And in that situation, I think what's important is not only to make sure that in the corporation they are they have a commitment to innovation and they want to try to create an innovation mindset they want to create that culture and i will ask individuals about their commitment to it and what it means to them to create that culture so i think you've got to you have to try to establish that and then i think in terms of the individuals we have to understand yes they're going to be skeptical and it's up to you to kind of break the ice and let them know that you've got a different approach some other way that you want to work with them and and that's why i find that the sugar packet story is sometimes a good way to break the ice they're not expecting you to start off with a story where you're vulnerable and tell your own experience and if you can get others to think back on their innovation experiences i find that everybody you know warms up a bit but um you know in in certain companies i think that when I talk about this culture that's important, and I'll, I'll talk with senior leaders about it, the most important thing that you can do to inculcate the curiosity, the embracing of change, the passion for problem solving, you really have to eliminate fear of failure. Because, you know, similar to what I said just a few minutes ago about, you know, innovation sort of being drained out of you as you become a professional and you have to know the answers, 
it's also very much the case that in corporations where we have to scale, we have to get things, the products to market, we have to evaluate ourselves quarter by quarter, we don't have a lot of, of time and we don't have a lot of patience for failure. And again, if you're going to create an environment of experimentation, not everything that you experiment on is going to be going to market. And I do think that what Jeff Bezos created at Amazon, which was try, fail, learn, was an interesting way to counter that. And what they tried to do in that culture was actually recognize, incent, and reward individuals for trying. And even if their idea didn't go forward, they still got they still got credit for for playing the game. So I think that's very, very important for for corporations to create that safe environment for people to ask questions, to not know, to do the experimentation. So we have a question from the audience, and and you started to touch on this. What's a great way to open up the mind and think outside the box, which kind of relates to my next question, and that is, what are some of the exercises that you suggest to stimulate innovation? Well, you know, one of the most basic things I think all of us can do is to start to be more observant, more aware just in our day-to-day life of problems that are around us. And, you know, who doesn't get up in the morning and take a run or sit in traffic or get a coffee and just notice that something could be more efficient, more effective, done differently. Maybe we need a new product. Um, But we tend to sort of become immune to all of the stimulus around us in our day-to-day lives. So I don't think that innovation is necessarily about creating the next Uber or Airbnb or iPhone or something that's disruptive or transformative. I think so often innovative opportunities are right under our nose, a little bit like the diner and the sugar packet story or some of the things we we did with my dad. And I think you need to make yourself more a student of that. So I usually recommend as a first exercise, make it a habit every day, jot down three problems that you've observed, put them in your tablet or on your phone, but do that. And I think it's a great exercise to do with your team. In fact, I I had a, a meeting earlier this week with the CEO of a fitness franchise, and we talked about this idea of being more observant and writing down problems. And at the end of a week or two, looking back at your list and seeing all the things that you noticed that could be improved, that could be the area to foment change. Your ideas could be there. And uh, and so she has made it part of her weekly meetings. She starts the weekly meeting when they do their round robin by asking someone to share one of the problems that they absor- observe that week. So that's a, a real simple way to get the team thinking that way for them to know that she wants them to be creative and to just get them in touch with being aware and being more observant. So that's that's one fairly easy thing to do. It's low tech. Um. What's the profile of the leader that really embraces innovation? Because I think a lot of people, especially really smart people, don't want to work for a leader that is just marking time. I mean, you've seen CEOs go into Fortune 500s and they basically just keep uh, keep the ship going in the same direction, but nothing new really comes and those companies end up not existing. And for the people below them, uh, they can't really... uh, grow as professionals, add on to the resume and get recruited for bigger and better opportunities. So how do you how do you look for the profile of the leader that embraces innovation? 
so you can work for that person? Well, that's a great question. And I think that so often in large corporations, we have individuals that maybe I'll just give a, per, a persona of more of a caretaker. So a little bit of what you described, keeping yeah. the lights on, keeping the business running, not really wanting to upset the apple cart, so to speak. And yet increasingly what corporations, the kind of persona that they want to recruit, the individual that they're putting in charge of these centralized innovation centers of excellence now in different departments is somebody who is going to question, who's going to bring new ideas, who has a growth mindset. So I think as those individuals come into the organization, they have a really important job to do because again, everybody's going to be watching them from the perspective of, is this lip service? Is it going to be real? Are their ideas in the way that they want to do things differently going to be embraced and advocated at the highest levels in the organization? Or is this more lip service and, you know, the person is going to be out the door in a year? So I think that if you're trying to attract people and give them that mantle of being more innovative, creative, fomenting change, taking us to new levels of growth, et cetera, the organization has to see that senior leadership are really locked arms around that approach and that they're very committed to it. And I think, again, it goes back to this idea of creating an environment where people don't fear failure. And, and I like to say we replace the word failure with pivot. And as long as we're staying true to our vision, we're changing strategy, maybe external market forces have indicated that the path we're on isn't the right one. So we've got to adjust direction. We never fail, but as long as we keep moving forward and we keep pivoting, but we're continuously learning then to me, that's positive and that's creating an innovation culture. And so that's what I as a leader aspire to do. And I, you know, I hope that others would, would do that as well. Yeah, I mean, we've seen examples of when it doesn't work, like Steve Ballmer. I mean, it was 10, 10 dead years for Microsoft. And with uh, the current CEO, I guess he's been in place four years. Microsoft, again, has become more of a dynamic organization. Lorraine, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, you mentioned different types of innovations, incremental, breakthrough, disruptive. Is there one that is more common than others and which one is the toughest to pull off? Well, that's one of my favorite questions. So uh, I love to answer that by telling a few little story or vignettes. And I would imagine that the audience around the room today has heard of the product called Rogaine. Yes. Have any nods? Okay. So Rogaine's been on the market for about 25 years, maybe longer. But what most people don't realize is that the Upjohn company that ultimately launched Rogaine actually started out testing it for an indication for a, uh, a certain type of cardiac issue. And as they did their clinical trials in middle-aged men with male pattern baldness for this cardiac product, they noticed hair growth. They saw that they had a pattern of hair growth, so they quickly put together the clinical trials and Rogaine for male pattern baldness launched ahead of Rogaine for the cardiac condition for which it was originally developed. I call that kind of innovation 
serendipity. It happens very rarely. It's a little bit like winning the lottery. I think it's very alluring. And we all hope that we have the one in 5 million chance that we're going to get the winning lottery ticket. But so often that's not the case. So an interesting kind of innovation, but not one that most of us will be involved in. A second example is the um, the disruptions that we see. So we, we talk about disrupting markets with Uber or with Airbnb or the evolution of the Mac into a small iPhone in our hands with Steve Jobs. And we think about the icons of innovation. And I call those big hunt or transformative innovations. And again, I think while they, when they happen, they're fantastic, but most of us will probably not be involved in a big hunt or a unicorn innovation either. And then the third type of innovation that I see, and I'll tell another story, when I was early in my innovation career, I had a colleague who had licensed a technology from a lab in Israel, and it was a very interesting technology. It could measure oxidative stress in just about any body tissue. We were very excited about its potential. And quickly, we tried to identify the indication that might make the most sense. What we found out was that oxidative stress is a byproduct in just about every kind of disease, from multiple sclerosis to Parkinson's to heart failure. And as you can imagine, it was very difficult for us to focus on an indication or a problem to raise the capital, to get the stakeholders involved. So the technology ended up being outlicensed to a lab. And what I learned then was that that kind of innovation I call the field of dreams. So if everybody remembers the Kevin Costner movie with Shoeless Joe Jackson, where he's encouraged to build a ball field in the middle of an Iowa cornfield, you know, build it and they will come. That innovation is actually what I see all the time when I'm working with early stage entrepreneurs and students and others. We as individuals have such a penchant for creating solutions. We love creating solutions. It's a lot of fun. It's very inspiring. It's very creative. And so often in innovation, I'd say 98% of the time, we've got a solution, particularly in technology. And now we have to figure out what problem we want to solve. And so because I have observed that kind of innovation so often, it's why I really advocate for Identify the problem, validate it, create that problem statement, go through your three solutions, get the one that fits, do a lot of customer testing, and make sure that you're solving a problem that a customer wants to pay for. It is going to save you a lot of headache, heartache, and sleepless nights, as well as lost dollars later on if you start with that as a premise. So that's... uh, that's what I teach my students, and that's what I advocate for entrepreneurs, and I try to follow that lesson myself, too. You have eight laws of innovation uh, in your book. Which uh, law do companies and leaders struggle with most? Well, you know, I'm doing a workshop next week uh, with a large corporation, and uh, we've done a little bit of a diagnostic in order to determine where they feel as though they're the most spongy. And I would say it's in the problem identification stage right up front. It's very difficult to observe that problem, to gather the evidence, 
to really dig in in a disciplined type of fashion, to characterize it, to write a problem statement, and then to use that problem to guide the solution that you develop. Again, we really feel a rush to solution. And then the second law that I think, particularly in large corporations, uh, people struggle with is the implementation. So I have a section on developing your plan, really understanding your business model, taking a look at risks. And I think that's the part around the planning and the the de-risking and the risk mitigation. Again, we're really anxious to do the market testing, do the customer research, launch the product and or service or new process. And we really haven't taken the time to do a thorough risk assessment and understand where the obstacles and the challenges are going to be. So I think it's the problem identification and then it's that de-risking in the implementation planning phase are the two areas that I hear most often are the ones that catch people up. Uh, you, just before everybody joined us, we talked about women in entrepreneurship, women raising capital and patents and so forth. Why, why do you think only 5% of patents are held by women according to your book? Is that historical? And if so, how much has that changed? You know, like if you're looking back throughout history, maybe only 5% of women Held patents, but maybe if you're looking over the last decade, maybe the percentage of women getting uh, patents is forty percent. I don't know the answer to that question. So is that is that number growing, or is it just stayed flat and that only five percent of women are uh, getting patents? And why do you think that is? So there's definitely a historical component. You know, there was certainly a time in history when uh, patent law had been developed and when patents were being filed, where women as well as people of color were not permitted to file patents. So that has created, I think, a little bit of a, a lag and a legacy issue that had to be overcome. I think also for women, it's been a challenge to encourage women into STEM careers and STEM professions. And we know that most patents, most inventions come out of science, technology, engineering, and math. So that's also an area that I was definitely improving upon it, but um, it's taken some time to get women into STEM careers. I agree with you. It's absolutely going in the right direction now, um, but that is a historic um figure of the 5%. I haven't looked like over the last three years to see how much it's improved. But when I was doing my research on the book, while it was incrementally improving, I mean, it's not as though we had gone from 5% to 25% in the last five years. It was like going from 5% to now 7 or 8%. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. But it's why I, why, why I feel particularly passionate about the desire to encourage more women. I just want women to be thinking about STEM careers, the possibility of filing patents for their ideas, considering entrepreneurial opportunities, considering that they too can innovate. And you asked a, a parallel question, which is why it's also been difficult. And I think it's because of difficulty accessing the capital markets. And so we think about STEM education, we think about access to capital, we think about the right kind of network for innovation and entrepreneurship to flourish. I personally believe that the more we have an investor community that is represented by women, they have a greater awareness about other women entrepreneurs, they want to be supportive. I think that that figure can increase. There's an, an organization 
in New York, I love to give a shout out to called Plum Alley and the two founders, uh, women who had been on Wall Street, wanted to try to encourage more women investors. And they wanted to make investing available to the average woman, not just a, a professional investor, because they were repeatedly seeing in meetings that there was just a dearth of women around the table. So they've taken it upon themselves to have a very large, inclusive venture capital group. They give training to women. They encourage women. They show them how to move capital around within their own you know, wealth system in order to invest. And so they're trying to create more capabilities and more investing acumen just among average women, which I think is a really positive thing. And I think that the more that's being done, the more that we can we can encourage other women to get into innovation and entrepreneurship. And then I think the third component is around the networking. And I write about this in the book as well. And it's very well documented that women don't tend to network. And I don't mean to make something sound so general, but in general, women aren't always as effective networkers as men from the perspective of networking in a way that supports um, entrepreneurship and building a business. So, you know, women may tend to network with other people within their department, within their company, within their community, people that they feel comfortable with and not necessarily put them out, put themselves out there by going to an event where they're going to meet attorneys and accountants and investors and financial advisors. And of course, those sorts of professionals are critical when it comes to getting your company started up and, and helping to get you through a lot of the operating model and launch decisions that you have to make. So I think that's another area where we could probably improve. You and your husband acquired your father's chemical business. Well, what's it been like working with your husband and are any of your kids involved? So, you know, my dad, he was a, a serial inventor and uh, he did he did found that company. And so we purchased it from him when he was ready to retire. My husband really ran the business. I uh, tried to just be uh, a Saturday morning coffee advisor on his board. I didn't try to get too involved. I think it's really important to have the lines of accountability and responsibility in, in a family owned business and not try to jump in and do someone else's job. So I was very respectful of the role that he played. And uh, I, I was there to advise on strategy. You know, my kids have all gone in their own in their own direction. None of them were particularly keen on the family business. That doesn't mean that they won't come back around and do something entrepreneurial, but one went off for a military career. Another person is in the pharma field. Another individual, or my youngest son is, uh, is in consulting for a big consulting firm. So uh, no, they decided not to go into the family business. And I think that's fine because you know, my second law of innovation is that you have to have a, a passion for problem solving. And I think you have to solve a problem that you're passionate about. And so if you just feel an obligation, you know, to run a family business, it could be that whatever was inspiring you at the age of 12, you know, isn't being allowed to come forward. So I think everybody's got to find their innovation and their entrepreneurial endeavors for themselves. And it's got to be something that you're really excited about working on. So we we have no regrets that our sons didn't want to go into the business. How important is it um, to get employee buy-in when developing and implementing new innovations? Because employees could cut you off at the knees if they don't really believe in it. Yes. Well, that's 
you know, probably a, a very a very critical question that you raise. And I think creating that environment to embrace change and helping people understand that if the organization has to move in a direction, you know, from my experience in big corporations, what happens when you have to change and change direction or you have to pivot with your product or with your strategy is that people can't always envision the future. Like I can understand where I sit today and what I'm doing today, but when you paint me a picture of the future state, I have a hard time maybe envisioning that and understanding where I fit in. And I think when I don't feel comfortable with where I fit in, or I don't really understand the vision, the most natural human nature would be to be resistant or take a wait and see, or let's see whether this is really the flavor of the month, or are they really going to move forward with it? So again, I think as leaders, one needs to create an environment where you show that the change is real, you respect people and show them the data that is indicating that the company needs to move in the next direction. And while you can't spoon feed your employees ever, I, I don't think you should, you should have to do that. You do have to help them see where they fit in because at the end of the day, you've got to engage them in the vision, in the strategy, where you're headed so that they're on board and you've got to capture their head their heart, their hands. And, uh, and and so as a leader, I think you have to figure out ways to bring people along with you. There will be people that aren't going to be early adopters or they're going to be resistant. And maybe that's a time to discuss whether you need to part ways and that's absolutely fine. But as a leader, I do think you have a responsibility to show your employees where they fit in the change, help them envision that future. You mentioned, and we much appreciate, you mentioned the Angel Venture Fair in your book and that you presented there and you started a venture. What was the venture and what was the outcome of the venture? Is it still in existence? Did you sell it? What happened with it? So I co-founded a company called Ocular Proteomics with the chief ophthalmology officer and a very lucrative patentee from... Uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, system. And uh, he had a a number of retinal clinics throughout the Baltimore, Washington area. And we were working on um, the development of a proteomics lab for a panel of biomarkers that could help to predict response and non-response to agents that were available at the time to treat um, wet macular degeneration. So there was one major agent at the time that was available. It wasn't particularly effective. And with the biomarkers, we believed that we could help to determine who would be responsive and non-responsive. Other therapeutics were also in development. So we had a number of pharmaceutical conversations with other ophthalmology companies or companies that had ophthalmic agents in order to help them shape not only their discovery and their development platform, uh, but also how they went to market. And then on a parallel track, we were looking at developing a point of care home-based diagnostic that could be used in an office setting um, to give a a more accurate reading. Um, For a lot of of different reasons, based on the timing of the field and some other things that developed, uh, we ended up out-licensing that technology. And uh, the company 
took a direction of becoming more of a research lab to continue to continue to do companion biomarker research. And that particular um, IP portfolio was licensed out. So in a sense, you had a successful exit. Successful exit, I would say so. Yes. Excellent, excellent. So you talk about this in the book. How, how do you develop a customer-focused culture, not a product-focused one? What do you mean by that? And how do you do that properly? Well, so yeah, law four in the book is the, the law of 100 customers. And again, when I'm working with uh, early stage entrepreneurs or even when I'm coaching in, in large corporations, uh, I insist on really robust voice of the customer research. And so it's all about putting yourself in the customer's shoes. And the first thing is, who is a customer? Sometimes, believe it or not, we're really confused about that. And we confuse stakeholders with customers. And again, the customer is the person that, for us, has got the ability to pay for our solution. A lot of times, we don't know what work the customer currently does. What is their day-to-day? -day? What is their, their journey with the, with the work that they're doing? And then, importantly, we have to understand what's not working about whatever it is that we're planning to fix. So what problems are they experiencing? What gaps or needs are they experiencing? Um, and to have those kinds of conversations with them so that again, the solution that we're creating is in response to their problem, not a problem that we think they have, not a problem that we're really excited about solving, not something that's based on a lot of assumptions that haven't been validated, but a problem that we have had direct conversations with customers. Maybe we've observed the problem in its natural habitat. And the reason I suggest talking to 100 customers is it will give you some statistical significance in terms of your sample size. And you'll learn a ton in terms of additional questions, additional paths that you need to take. So that's what I mean by really putting yourself in the shoes of the customer and doing very thoughtful voice of the customer research. And I don't think it's a one and done either. I think that, that companies that just do an NPS score annually are really fooling themselves. And so you have to create a continuous improvement culture or method for having ongoing conversations with the customer. So a lot of times what I'll do is put together a customer fo focus group and um, tap into that focus group on a quarterly basis. So we're looking to release a new component to a product, or we're thinking about going in this direction, or what do you think about this trend that we're seeing in the industry? So I, I like this idea of continually getting the voice of the customer research to refine what we're doing. Let's go back to being an entrepreneur and raising capital. Oh, before we do that, we have a, a question from the audience. Aside from the family business, have you done any other investing in angel as an angel yourself? And if yes, what areas of innovation are you most excited about? Yes, I, I certainly am and have been uh, an angel investor. And um, I, I really enjoy the areas where um, it's a 
the ability to advance human health. So I have invested in uh, diagnostics and technologies that have helped us get a better handle on the disease process and uh, and do a better job of diagnosing diseases, particularly earlier. So, you know, I love to think about what we can do in terms of earlier screening, earlier diagnosis. So that's one of the areas that I'm interested in. And and, and it's really very growing and vibrant in so many ways, because now with the ability to have real world data, and I'm very involved in that area, and then apply advanced analytics with AI and machine learning, it, it's really being, it's honing our ability to use that data to see what those triggers are or what those early biomarkers are that might indicate disease and early diagnosis. And so I think that's giving us the information that we need in order to create these diagnostics that can give us insights into disease earlier. So that's only one of the areas, but that's one area that I that I really like. Um, let's talk about investor pitches. You started a chapter by telling the story of a software service company focused on diabetics whose presentation was less than stellar. Could you please give us a little bit about their background without telling the company and mistakes they made that entrepreneurs need to keep in mind? Yeah, so you can you learn more from your failures, right? Said not to say failures, but you learn more when you're not successful than when you are. And so that was one of the reasons that I put that story in the book in order to kind of punctuate what not to do. Uh, in that situation, those were all ex-pharma and big advertising executives who had retired, who definitely knew marketing. They definitely knew the disease area of diabetes very well. What I don't think they really appreciated was that, and I, I talked about it at the beginning of your show, they really didn't have a problem statement. They did not know what problem they were trying to solve. So they got very excited about a digital platform that they wanted to develop that could help um, to deliver information to, to people with diabetes. Um, it very much grew out of their own work in both pharma and the big advertising agency. So it was something that they had been kind of doing on the side of their desk for a while to create this digital platform. And ultimately, as it started to come together, because it was a little shallow in terms of the problem it was solving for and the customer research that had been done, there was no MVP, there wasn't the three solutions as I described. It was just the classic example of falling in love with a solution, you know, getting out there and talking to investors about it. And investors just saw through it very quickly. They could see that it was more of a marketing play than truly a company. And that's one of the things that didn't work out for them. And I also think that, you know, we talked about the idea that a lot of times as adults, professionals and big corporations, we think we always have to have the right answers. Maybe we think we do have the right answers. And so there was a little of that in terms of the style of the entrepreneurs as well, going in more with the investor group and pitching them or selling them on the idea really hard, as opposed to having a dialogue, listening, believing that maybe they could learn something that if they sought to understand more, they could make some tweaks and actually make their offering a little bit more effective or successful or, or have it resonate. Um, they went in very sure of themselves that this was the right solution and not very open to feedback or critiques. So th those were two main reasons why that one did not succeed. 
Uh, there is a comment, I guess. I've read Carol Deck's book on growth mindset. Look forward to reading your work. Uh, Lorraine, how would you characterize the difference between growth versus innovative mindset? Well, I think that they probably have a lot in common. I haven't I haven't read that particular book, but what when I think about the outcome of what it is I'm trying to advance with an innovation mindset and so it's 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 the mindset, right? So it's the uh the curiosity, the problem solving, the embracing change. That's the persona or the profile of the person. And then what I've done in my book is I've laid out steps that I believe are quintessential to helping you to be successful in your commercialization. And and ultimately, if you have that persona and you follow those steps, you will have growth as an output. So I guess I look at things in a very practical fashion. So what I'm advancing is growth of your business, commercial success. So, you know, I think what I'm advocating for is a growth mindset and I'm being a little bit more um, prescribed, prescriptive, I, I guess, in terms of how I'm helping people lay that out, but a huge advocate for it. And when I talk with companies about what outcome they can expect from the innovation mindset, it's definitely about, about driving growth. But I'd be interested in, in the... Uh, the, the questioners comments, how they what they view as the the sort of the tenant of the growth mindset that they liked. Well, she can always uh, mark those down and share them with all of us. Yes. Um, so how many slides do you think a pitch deck should be and how many executives from the company should be part of the pitch? So um, I get this question a lot. In fact, I got a text just the other day after someone who had read my book and he was going to give a pitch and he's like, Lorraine, mm, I've got like 25 slides. Is that too many? What should, what should I do? And I said, yes, it's probably too many. I say about 12 slides, 10 to 12 slides. That's just because I have a format for what goes into the pitch. So it's definitely the problem. It's the solution. It's something about the technology and the IP. Obviously, you need the customer piece in there, the market piece. You need um, the risk mitigation that we discussed, the business model and the forecast. So there are very basic components. And I believe that each one of them should be one slide and that you should be able to tell your story in about 10 to 12 minutes. That said, so it should be very succinct, easy for an investor to understand and allow them to dig in where they find they have the greatest interest because the worst thing that you can do in a pitch is take up all the oxygen in the room and spend time talking about yourself. So it's one of the reasons I really am an advocate uh, for training people that are pitching kind of in the speed speed dating methodology. I know it's not necessarily the be all end all in terms of effectiveness, but you do have to get very skilled at communicating your idea in a very short period of time in a pithy way, the headline in the elevator where they go, I got it. I want to hear more. And that's really the purpose of that initial pitch. I got it. I want to hear more. Don't try to accomplish too much more than that. How many competitors is too many before the entrepreneur needs to concede that it will be too hard to win a significant share of business? Well, I guess that question really, you know, really depends on on the market and where you are in it and the segment that you've identified. I think if in your customer research, you determine that most or all of customer needs are met, 
or the remaining customer needs really can't be solved by you, then it may be time to pivot and move in the right in the next direction because I told you we don't fail. I am completely for that question. I think you have to look at the market dynamics, but I think you have to talk to customers. Uh, I had a, a student team that I was uh, working with last night and uh, they have a, an idea for an early stage diagnostic and they found that there is a behemoth lab that's offering a diagnostic for the for the same indication. But the reason I encourage them to proceed is because we could pretty much tell that the diagnostic company, you know, saw an opportunity. It was fairly easy for them to roll out a diagnostic to service that market, but they're not putting a lot of time and effort or thought into servicing that market. And it turns out that it's a market that is very specialized, very sensitive. It needs a lot of empathy. And so what I said to these two individuals is continue to do your customer research. If you continue to find that there is need for the earlier stage diagnostic, for more services around it, for a greater connectivity with the community, with more empathy, and you can find unmet needs that, again, the customer is willing to pay for, then you should proceed. If you find, again, that the customer needs are mostly being met or you can't address them, they're policy-related, they're outside of your scope or your remit, they're too expensive, they're going to take 10 years to fix then those would be the times when I say it's time to move on and do something else. How many pages should a business plan be? And what are the common mistakes entrepreneurs make when developing their plans? Well, you know, I think that the idea of a business plan has become probably a very archaic, uh, <laughs> you know, concept now. You know, when I launched my first company, I think my business plan was 100 pages and it had a lot of detailed you know, backup about the technology and the research and our forecasting. Anymore, I think you're looking for a 25-page executive summary type of, of fashion and that you really use, it follows the, the same flow as that pitch, pitch deck that we've described. And uh, I think what's more important anymore is that you have, you take that 25 pages, you narrow it into a one-page executive summary that you can easily pass out, non-confidential, by the way. You follow that up with the 10-page pitch deck, which gets the investor to say, got it, I want to know more. And then under an NDA and after further discussion, if they truly want to see your forecast, more detail about your technology. I think uh, you know a 25-page document should be more than enough. You're always going to have more, uh, but you don't need to share all of that. And I always tell my students that the business plan is not the destination, right? The business plan is guiding you through a process of deliberating, contemplating, being very thoughtful about your company and your business, and you're learning through it in order to synthesize and make everything very simple. So don't get so hung up on the plan, which could go in the drawer, although you should constantly be updating it because it's a tool to help you think. It's a living organism for sure. Uh, a question from the audience. What's your advice to women who need to present, uh, who need to present infant of men and uh, infant of men investors in order to be taken seriously? I don't know uh, what that quite means by infant. Um, what is your advice to women who need to present? Uh, she may have updated well, that question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I sorry, I meant I, to say in front of men. That's what she meant. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so that's a 
That's a very good question as well. And I think that women need to be as confident in their topic, in their knowledge, in their ability to present as any man. So I don't know that they have to necessarily do anything different, but I understand what she means by the fact that it can be intimidating to be presenting in front of a panel of men, particularly very experienced investors. And what I would say is you really have to know your stuff. Maybe you have to know your stuff even a little bit better, um, you know, given the circumstances, because you want to feel confident and you want to come off as very technically adept. You definitely need to know your numbers, um, understand your financials, your forecast. And so what I really recommend to women is know it cold. And if you need to get some counseling in terms of doing some practicing of your pitch, having some hard questions thrown at you so that you're prepared, I think that's what you need need to do. The, the more prepared you feel, the more successful that experience is going to be. But don't shy away from it. Do your homework. Have nerves of steel. Don't let anybody tell you no or to put you down or tell you that you can't. You've got to stay in the game and you've got to do it. Just make sure you do it right. I think that this whole world of that is changing. I don't see much of that anymore like I did 20 years ago, and especially 20 years ago. Men were hesitant to invest in women, especially young women, thinking if they had pregnant and had kids, what would happen to the company? Now they've seen a whole gener two generations of women handle it really well and build great companies. So that question doesn't come up. The next question, I'm going to mention the person who uh, is asking this question. His name is Chuck Daniels. And Chuck is a serial entrepreneur and he's raised money from the Angel Venture Fair. But why I mentioned Chuck is that Chuck has bought almost every single author's book who've been on this show. And he showed me a picture. He has like uh, over 125 books, every single author. So I'm sure he'll be buying yours. And Chuck's question is to foster problem solving curiosity in our children. Would you recommend giving them puzzles to solve or teaching them games like chess or checkers? Well, Chuck, it's very nice to meet you. And it's wonderful to meet an avid reader. We don't always come across avid readers. And I, I certainly hope that my book will make it in your library. So you'll have to send me a picture if you decide to buy it. But I think that's a great question in terms of inculcating curiosity in children. And I would say all of that. I think puzzles help you to look at patterns, to think things differently, to see what happens when you put something together. So I love the idea of that. I think chess and checkers get you to think a little bit more strategically, a couple steps ahead of the game. So I love that. Um, I think it's also terrific to um, quiz kids on, um, on factoid sorts of things. I mean, in my family, we love to do sort of our own version of, of trivia. And, uh, and so people will have their facts about sports or news or science or music. And so, you know, dinner conversations and get togethers are usually laced with these questions and these quizzes and, and sort of this trivia. So I think all of those types of activities that stimulate the mind, that get the conversation going on problems that you can solve, and I think, you know, early on, this idea of even around the house, seeing a problem and asking your, your child or your grown child, adult, whatever it might be, what are three different ways that we could solve that? Let's work together to figure out how to solve this particular problem. I think all those, all those different techniques are stimulating. And I think what matters, Chuck, is that you're thinking about it and being thoughtful. And I hope all parents are thinking about ways that they can stimulate curiosity in their children. Because again, as we go through life, it's just far too easy for that to get um, 
distilled down. Absolutely. And we have just a couple more minutes here. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what's your advice on about taking money from friends and family? Well, I think that taking money from friends and family, especially if you're in a startup that isn't ready to raise your series, well, that isn't ready to go out to angels, um, I think that that is oftentimes the very best next path. I have advised a number of early stage companies that weren't really ready for angel fund to appeal to uh, to friends and family for their first round of capital. And I would say that, you know, nine times out of 10, it's worked well. I think what's really important is to make sure that you let the family members know as investors that there are no guarantees. This is high risk. Uh, they may or probably will not get their money back and that they're doing it for the right reasons. So with all kinds of investing, I think you have to be completely transparent and you have to share what the risks are. And I think if you do that in the form of friends and family funding, that can also be sometimes the only way to get started, but I think it can be effective. Lorraine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. They've walked away with a lot of great information. You have awesome experience. We're glad that you participate in the Angel Venture Fair, and you actually bought the very first ticket to come on November 2nd. This November 2nd <clears throat> is the Angel Venture Fair, the live version of which we expect two, 300 investors. So we're glad and look forward to seeing you. And um, everybody will get to meet some amazing entrepreneurs. Everybody have a wonderful uh, weekend and we'll look forward to seeing you next Friday. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody. Look forward to talking to you on LinkedIn. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.